Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, hello, my name is Elijah Daly. Thanks for checking out this podcast. We have been going through the book of Ephesians and looking at Paul's prison letters, Ephesians being one of them, and uh, we had some audio issues with the class that that I taught uh, last week, and so I figured I would just come and kind of give you a synopsis of the book, give you some closure as we look forward to jumping into Philemon uh, with Jim this coming week. So uh, really, here's what I want to do. I want to start in Ephesians 5 and start in verse 18. I'm just want to read this for us as we look at what exactly Paul is saying for the church as they begin to understand what it is their new family looks like. And so this is what he says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything uh, should submit in everything to their husbands. So I read this passage because really it's important to see uh, what Paul is trying to do. Uh, his call for all of us, for everybody who belongs to the church, uh, is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And when Paul begins to set this up, what he does is he says, look at the household, for instance. Look at wives submitting to their husbands. This is an example of which uh, what it means for us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, even as we should continue to model the same example uh, within our homes. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And so what he's doing is he's looking at the actual image of a body, just like Paul has already begun to set up throughout the book of Ephesians, that the church is the body of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 1, 2, and 4. And what he's saying is, just like this, just like Christ is the head of the body, in which it is, is deciding and moving, and we are simply the hands and feet of Jesus, we are, but we're all collectively apart, we're all in Christ, and all the things that that guarantees for us. With all that being said, we, as, as fingers and hands and toes, we are all supposed to be in submission to whatever the head determines. And this is essentially the same role that women should have in the home. Women are, sub- to, are to be submissive to what, what the husband begins to, uh, to deliberate. Now, the caveat is, is that Paul leaves no room for abuse. Paul leaves no room for abuse. There is never going to be an instance where the submission um, begins to actually um, deteriorate the relationship between husband and wife because the husband has asked the wife to do something that goes beyond God's intention. And actually, Paul begins to head this off very quickly when he goes in verse 25 and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And this is important. Listen here. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And this is the point. 
This is the point. That wives are submit to, are to submit to their husbands, not so that they can be dominated, not because they are inferior. Those things are absolutely untrue. They are to submit to their husbands because God has commissioned a husband to help and lead his family to present his wife holy, without blemish, without spot or wrinkle, and in splendor to God. This is the point. And I think that when we begin to talk about submission with wives, it's something that we begin to wince at in our culture. This is not something that they would have done that with in theirs. This was expected. But what we begin to see, what we begin to um, really, Paul begins to elaborate on, is that this is the same submission that is required from all of us to each other. And the only reason, the only reason a wife would not want to submit to her husband is because she's unconvinced that her husband wants to die for her. That his love for her is actually overcoming, consuming him with a desire to want to present his bride and his family as a whole before his God as holy and blameless and without spot or wrinkle. This is the command. And instead, Paul begins to go outside of just the wife submitting, and he starts to put more on the husband loving. Now, this would have been countercultural. We don't wince at this at all. We actually have an expectation built in that this is what a husband should do. But in their day and age, Nothing like this would have been seen in other ancient household codes. Paul is doing something new, revolutionary, because he's calling a husband to love, their, love his wife, even at the expense of himself, even at the expense of himself. And this is what he says as he continues on in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why? Because for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, he's quoting Genesis here, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what's the point in all this? What's the point in all this? The wife is to submit to her husband because she trusts that, he, that he's willing to die for her. A wife is to submit to her husband because she trusts that he's going to do everything in his power to help her become the person that God desires her to be. And the wife is going to do so because in doing so, she can respect and, and actually cr- help create the dynamic relationship where not only she can become the person she's meant to be, but so can he and so can their family. And then that family example actually begins to to come into the church. This is how we are supposed to submit to one another. Why? Because we have been given an example in Christ and his love for us that we are also supposed to display to one another. We are supposed to act not only in submission, but also in love, believing that we are able to respect one another because we are all willing to, 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 to love one another at the cost of even our own life. This is, this is the demand. These are the images that Paul is giving, not only of a household, but of design, of a bride, and creation itself. And so he moves on from the wife-husband relationship right into children and parents. He says, "'Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother.'" This is the first commandment with a promise, 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So again, he's, he's talking to, to children and parents. And specifically, there was usually a patriarch that was over the household. This was a very common uh, situation. Uh, now, that, didn't always, that wasn't always the father specifically. It could have been maybe the grandfather if the, if the family still lived uh, at home. But generally speaking, there was a patriarch. There was a, there was a male head of the home, and he would begin to have discipline, not only still of his kids, even if they had kids, um, but of the whole household. And obviously, there was still a command even for the children to obey their earthly parents. But here's the point. Paul is trying to say to children, obey your parents because it will go well with you and you will actually benefit. This will be for your flourishing. Your parents are almost, or they should be at least, trying to raise you in a way that's helping you become something. And that is really the point of what Paul is saying. Don't provoke your children to anger by being overly disciplined or over, providing these, these expectations that are too heavy to bear or instruction that's not from the Lord, right? We're not just telling them what to do. We're showing them who to become. And that is what Christ has put on the lives uh, of those who are part of his church. The same idea that we should be modeling behavior, not simply uh, demanding it. Because grace teaches us to keep his commandments and law warns us not to break them. And so what we begin to find is that even as we begin to minister in the church and in our households, we're all sinful, we all, we all fall short, and the ways in which we go about caring and being a part of those relationships, trying to bring reconciliation, peace, redemption to them, is not by, by, by harsh discipline, but by calm and, and gentle words. By, by allowing ourselves not to be filled, again, with a drunkenness that leads to, to anger or, or sex or an abuse of, of, of our joys and desires, but instead to be filled with the Spirit and be characterized by the Spirit so that even in these relationships, they are becoming informed by this, this new um, goodness that's actually living within us. He moves on in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master is yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So this is the point of, of what we're doing. Uh, when we're looking at a text like this, we're beginning to unpack the differences between uh, masters and slaves. Not, again, not to say that there's a difference in equality uh, or significance, but simply that there are these roles operating within the house. And this would have been one that was more like employment. Uh, we shouldn't see slavery here as we do uh, in you know colonial America or the Civil War or even into the 1900s with segregation. This isn't this isn't the same type of things that we're seeing where where people are being abused. This isn't even racial. Most slavery at this point wasn't even racial. It was simply more of an employment relationship. And there were lots of benefits that actually came along with being a slave rather than being a poor person because of the ways in which slaves had to be taken care of within the household. And in fact, Paul, uh, I've heard many commentators say that Paul is giving a lot more instruction to slaves because the church actually was mostly comprised of slaves. And so it becomes a really meaningful part of what Paul is talking about here. He's not trying to get away with, um, he's not trying to, to throw away the, the institution of slavery, one, because it's not the same institution that we understand as slavery, uh, but also it's because he's trying to redefine how we operate within it. That we have been, we've been equipped with more 
than what God has ever, uh, well, we've been equipped with more uh, than we could ever imagine. And, and God has equipped us with more than this, this ability to survive. He's, he's equipped us with ability to live and actually change um, the ways in which we can impact the eternity of others. And so we begin to, to be partners with Christ in whatever relationship he puts us in. And this is why Paul even makes it clear in Colossians 3, and when he says a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Christ has completely changed the dynamic of who we are. And so while we may have different roles in society, within our homes, we are in Christ and therefore are equal in Christ. So Paul moves on from there and he goes into the end of chapter 6. He starts in verse 10. And he says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And one of the things we talked about in class was that this was this is a reality. Jesus believed in Satan. Jesus believed in these spiritual powers, and he fought against them, and he often healed people um, in light of these things, from these things. And so whether we are facing, facing spiritual oppression or seeing people face spiritual possession, our goal is to be people who are in the, in the fight, in the battle, not doing so with real human weapons, but instead doing so with the things God has equipped us uh, to be a part in the battle with. And so this is what he says going on in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Why do we need the belt of truth? Because Satan is a liar. He's an accuser. He's a deceiver. And if we are going to believe him, we are not going to be able to stand for long. But if we have the truth knowing what all that God has accomplished, all that God is, knowing that he is still working, knowing that he is using us, Satan will have no chance, nor anything under his power. And we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is not a righteousness of our own. No, this is a justice that we have been given, that we have been clothed with, and it is that of Christ. When, when we are shot at, we have something that has been strapped onto our chest, reminding us that it was not our failures that got us here. It was the success of our God. It was his obedience. It was his perfection. And it is his glory that we simply bow to. And it is his righteousness that we stand under. It is his righteousness that we are clothed with. Verse 15 says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, shoes were necessary because, of course, you could step on all sorts of things. Um, and so... What Paul's saying here is simply by having shoes on your feet, by having this readiness of the gospel, you have understood the gospel, you have responded to the gospel, and so at any point that Satan attempts to attack, these spiritual forces begin to attack, you are already ready because you already know the good news, that you have been reconciled with God. Nothing can stand against you. And that at the, at the same time, this gospel is available for every single other person. Nothing is going to begin to separate you from God and begin to change that destiny. He continues on, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now this shield, if he's, if he's thinking about, um, you know, a Roman shield is typically wooden, four feet in height, um, but sometimes what they would do is they would put leather on the front as well, and they would soak it with water. That way, if a flaming dart hit it, it would be extinguished. Uh, but it could also be associated with Eros and Cupid. Both were, were gods, Greek and Roman, uh, that were typically associated with shooting these flaming arrows, and they had to do with lust 
lust at the time. So it's possible, you know, with how much Paul has associated lust with, with those who are still in darkness or, or those who quite haven't um, taken a step to, into the light and toward God, uh, it could be that this is, this is associated with that. Maybe it's a double entendre where it's both, um, not only evil forces that are, that are trying to attack us, but maybe it's specifically with lust. We don't exactly know for sure. Uh, but all that to say, what's happening is there's an evil one, and these, these darts are being extinguished simply by the fact of our faith. When we have a belief that God is who he says he is, we trust him, and we are leaning into that. We're surrendering to that and all that he is. Uh, he continues on and take the helmet of salvation. This helmet is one in which uh, we are reminded it protects the most important part of our body, right? Our head. And it is a salvation. We've been saved. We have been rescued from the slavery of sin and death. We've been rescued from that. We are no longer a slave. We are a slave to righteousness now. That's what Romans 8 says. And so we move beyond uh, the, this, this fear of, of being hit. Um, but instead, we have a protection uh, that's constantly being worn on our heads, reminding us what exactly we have been saved uh, from and saved to. And he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And this is the point that Paul really reinforces here, is that from up, to, up until this point, he has given us all of these things that are, that are being given to us for defense. But this is the one area that he says, I'm going to give you something for offense. I'm going to give you something to slay. And this is what he says it is, the word of God. This is the word of God. This is the prayer that we are able to speak in the Spirit when we are allowing ourselves to be conscientious, to be listening, to be um, willing and aware of what God is trying to do in the midst of these spiritual battles, not only to defend ourselves, but actually begin to attack the enemy, to slay the enemy. And so we see Jesus as a prime example of this, and here's what I want you to, to to note, even uh, if you think about the Gospel of Luke, Luke in chapter 3 begins to list a genealogy of Jesus that leads to Adam. This is significant because um, Matthew lists a genealogy as well, but this doesn't lead to Adam, it leads to Abraham, because Matthew's agenda is to show something a little bit differently than, than Luke is. Luke wants to show you that, that Jesus is from the line of Adam. He's a man, he's a human, um, even as he is divine. And so what Luke does is he shows this, but he's also showing something different. Because where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Immediately after the genealogy of Luke, what happens to Jesus? He goes into the wilderness. He goes into the desert. And most people think he does this as a retreat. He's fasting. He's going out there. He's trying to get his, his life and mind right so he can go and do ministry full-time in the first time um, in his life, in the way, at least which is recorded to us in the Gospels. But I disagree I think that Jesus is moving out into the, into the wilderness, into the desert, not to retreat and prepare, but to attack. Because who finds him there but Satan? And what does Satan do? What is the first temptation he offers him? Just like Adam and Eve, food. But Jesus does not accept. You see, Jesus goes out and he uses the word of God to fight against Satan. Everything that comes out of his lips, out of his mouth, is not just a defense of what Satan, of the lies that Satan is trying to tell Jesus. No, he is actually fighting Satan in the desert. And by the end of it, Satan is running. He departs. And what we begin to see is that Jesus is actually fulfilling all the things that Adam could never do, all the things that Adam could never be. And you and I are Adam. 
You and I are the humans that failed to be able to live up to what God has accomplished. But when Jesus came, he did everything necessary. And now he's trying to clothe us, trying to give us the peace and and weapons necessary, not to fight on our own, but to fight in Christ, to be in Christ, to be a part of his body, to be his bride, and to be a part of his family. This is Paul's point, that we have been adopted and moved into a family of God that we can enjoy for eternity. And when we begin not only to equip ourselves with a defense against the darkness, but to allow ourselves to be soaked and know the word of God to fight against it, we can truly be a part of the kingdom of God advancing, of the kingdom of God parading ahead. And so as he finishes up, he asks simply that they would continue to pray, to keep alert with all perseverance, he says, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that they would join the battle, is what he's asking. That words may be given to me, to Paul, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see, Paul wants us to recruit. He wants us to continue to proclaim the message, that every single person would know the gospel and become a warrior against those who stand against it. He ends it like this, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And so I end this letter just like Paul does. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I hope this book has been helpful for you, and I hope that uh, you are ready to enjoy the next ones that follow as we continue to study Paul's prison letters. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.